Thank you, Bishop. Well, good morning once again. Good to be with you, and we are continuing our series that we've been working through now for the last several weeks as we've been exploring the forefathers, the forefathers of our faith. And specifically, those forefathers that we've been looking at are Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph, and some of the lessons that we can learn from their lives. Now, sometimes we learn lessons from the do-as-I-did category where we look at examples and we look at stories and we say, yes, I should do as they did. Other times we learn lessons from the uh, don't do as I did category. I'll let you decide today which one of those two that we're on. Our reading today picks up from the point that um, Rebecca, you'll remember last week we talked about Rebecca and her marriage to Isaac, the son of Abraham. Rebecca has two boys, twins, Jacob and Esau. And over the course of their lives, well, each parent has kind of chosen a favorite. And that has led to some very, very difficult circumstances. In this particular moment, uh, Rebecca is helping her favorite son, Jacob, pull a quick one over on uh, Isaac. You see, the birthright, the blessing, the, the family heritage, the family blessing from father to son is rightly to go to the oldest son, and that would be Esau. But Rebekah wants her favorite son to have this blessing. And so she connives and contrives with Jacob to pull a quick one over on Isaac. Isaac at this point is very old. Isaac at this point is blind. And so the plan is this. They almost cartoonishly dress Jacob, who's smaller and thinner, in the oversized, rough outdoorsman clothes of Esau. And to cover his thin and small and hairless arms, she wraps his arms in animal skins. And so that gives you the background, that gives you the context of where we're going to start our reading today. Our reading is going to pick up in Genesis chapter 27, and we're going to begin in verse 24. So this is where we are up to this point, and we pick up the story at verse 24. Isaac asked, Are you really my son Esau? I am, Jacob replied. Isaac said, Bring me some of the wild game for me to eat, my son, and then I will bless you. So Jacob brought it to him, and he ate it. And he also brought him wine, and Isaac drank. And his father Isaac said to him, Come here and kiss me, my son. So Jacob went over and kissed him. And when Isaac caught the scent of his clothing, he blessed him, saying, Yes, my son smells like the scent of an open field which the Lord has blessed. May God give you the dew of the sky, the richness of the earth, plenty of grain and new wine. May peoples serve you and nations bow down to you. You will be Lord over your brothers, and the son of your mother will bow down to you. May those who curse you be cursed, and those who bless you be blessed. Isaac had just finished blessing Jacob, and Jacob had scarcely left his father's presence when his brother Esau returned from the hunt. He prepared some tasty food and brought it to his father. And Esau said, My father, get up and eat some of your son's wild game. Then you can bless me. His father Isaac asked, Who are you? I am your firstborn son, he replied, Esau. And Isaac began to shake violently and ask, 
Then who else hunted game and brought it to me? I ate all of it just before you arrived, and I blessed him, and he will indeed be blessed. When Esau heard his father's words, he wailed loudly and bitterly, and he said to his father, Bless me too, my father. But Isaac replied, Your brother came in here deceitfully, and he took away your blessing. Esau exclaimed, Jacob is the right name for him. He has tripped me up two times. He took away my birthright, and now look, he has taken away my blessing. Then he asked, Have you not kept back a blessing for me? Isaac replied to Esau, Look, I have made him lord over you. I have made all of his relatives his servants and provided him with grain and new wine. What is left that I can do for you, my son? Esau said to his father, Do you only have that one blessing, my father? Bless me too. Then Esau wept loudly. So his father Isaac said to him, See here, your home will be by the richness of the earth and by the dew of the sky above. You will live by your sword, but you will serve your brother. When you grow restless, you will tear off his yoke from your neck. So Esau hated Jacob because of the blessing his father had given to his brother. And Esau said privately, The time for mourning for my father is near, and then I will kill my brother Jacob. I tell you what, this is no easy story for us to make sense of. This is a very challenging dilemma to be in. And in fact, throughout the course of, of, of Christian history, in fact, even longer than Christian history, throughout the course of scholarly biblical work, even the ancient Jews had a really hard time making sense of this story. I mean, everything about this story seems to be head over heels. Everything about it seems to be completely wrong. The person that you know in your heart you're supposed to be rooting for is the bad person. You, you know that Jacob is the one who's going to be the son that promise is going to come through. You know the story and you know how it's all going to end. But looking back at this chapter of it, you just, you find him to be a very despicable person. I mean, he starts by deceiving his own father. His father Isaac, the son of promise. He, he steals twice from his older brother Esau. And then over the course of the rest of this story manipulates numerous people in many different ways to increase his popularity, to increase his fame, to increase his wealth. And in so many ways, the character of Jacob is just a really complex and kind of despicable character. You know, throughout the years, theologians have struggled with what to do with this story. What do you do with a story like this? What do you do with a story where the, the main character, who's the hero, is actually a bad person? How do you make sense of this? And they've come largely with two different ideas. One idea is you just try to explain it away or ignore it. You just try to explain it away or ignore it. Or the other is that you try to find some way to justify it and make it sound better than it is. A lot of the early church fathers, a lot of the early historians of the Bible, their choice was just to try to ignore it, just to try to kind of pretend that it really didn't happen. In fact, some went so far as to say this story wasn't a real story. Some went so far as to say this is just an allegory. This is like a parable. This, this didn't really happen. This is just a, a made-up story that kind of gives a picture of, uh, of how this might have taken place. But it didn't really happen. Well, you know, I don't think that's easily done. 
The second idea was, well, what we should do is we should find a way to, to praise God for this and to hold this up as God's will being fulfilled and, and something great coming out of this. I mean, in both of these cases, you, you have to realize this is an inconsistent storyline. This is something that's really hard to make sense of. You, you can't cover it up. You can't ignore it. You can't explain it away. And you can't make it say something it really doesn't say. The reality is, Jacob was really deceitful. And he did some terribly, terribly manipulative things. But what do you do when you find something ugly in the Bible? Well, my suggestion is we do exactly what the Bible does. And when the Bible finds something ugly, it calls it ugly. And when the Bible finds something despicable, it points it out that it's despicable. And here the Bible doesn't seem to make any bones about the fact that what we have here is a picture of a man who was a far cry from what God wanted him to be. The, the good news of this is that in the midst of this darkness and in the midst of this storm and in the midst of all of this turmoil, there are some really wonderful and beautiful things that we can see as God shines his light into this story in some really powerful ways. You guys know, because I've shared this with you before, that, that I have a particular fondness for this, this uh, phenomenon in nature that takes place, where you have a dark, cloudy sky, and out of that dark, cloudy sky, you'll suddenly have this, this break in the clouds, this one little small spot where this beam of light comes down, and it's, it's just a gorgeous effect. Growing up, we called those kips. I learned that the actual name is crepuscular ray, which the former science teacher in me was just ecstatic to learn. Crepuscular ray. It just makes you sound smart. Next time you're driving down the road and you see one of these, you can turn to your kids and go, look at there, son, that's a crepuscular ray. But you know exactly what I'm talking about. That, that kip, that big si that, that light that comes down through the midst of that dark, dark cloud. You know, in some ways, I think that's kind of how this story falls out. Because it's easy to see the darkness, isn't it? Isn't it easy to see the deceit and the ugliness and the sin and the lying and the cheating and the stealing? There's so much in this that's ugly. There's so much in this that's dark. But into this dark story, God shines this beautiful light. And the light comes down in three ways. God's going to shine his light into the very sin that's taking place. He's going to shine his light into the scarred, the ones who are injured and wounded by this. And he's going to shine his light into the saga, the continuing story that's going to take place. You know, no matter how dark things get, no matter how dark things get in your life and mine, we'd be wise to be reminded that there's always a ray of light that comes through, even the darkest of those clouds. God shines, first of all, into the sin. You know, every part of this story is just filled with sin. Filled with darkness, filled with, filled with mistakes, filled with all kinds of turmoil. It started all the way back in the womb with Jacob and with Esau. From the very womb, they were already in conflict. Genesis chapter 22, sorry, Genesis chapter 25, verse 22 says, But the children struggled inside her, and she said, Why is this happening to me? Verse 26 says, when his brother came out with his hand clutching Esau's heel, they named him Jacob, heel grabber, one that tries to trip up somebody. That's what his very name means. Imagine going through life being called the one who tries to trip up somebody. And maybe some of you, 
Maybe some of you know what it's like to have two children in the womb that are already at battle with one another. But that's how it started from the very beginning for these two. And then it boiled over into the stew. That was a bad dad joke, but it did. It boiled over into the stew. Genesis chapter 25. Genesis chapter 25 says this. Jacob cooked up some stew. And when Esau came in from the open fields, he was famished. So Esau said to Jacob, feed me some of that red stuff. Yes, give it to me. I'm starving. This red stuff is why he became known as Edom, which was his nickname. But Jacob replied, first, sell me your birthright. Look, said Esau, I'm about to die. What use is a birthright to me? But Jacob said, swear an oath to me now. And Esau swore an oath to him, and he sold his birthright to Jacob. Now, I got to tell you, I've never been starving before. I've never been at a point where I was so famished that I thought my physical body was going was to die because of lack of nutrients. I've never been in that kind of situation. And I know that Esau gets all kinds of mockery for giving up something so precious because he got a little hungry. And I'm not here to contend with that, but I am here to say this. He thought he was starving. Whether or not he was really starving is not really the point. Because in trauma, in difficult moments, your perception is kind of the way you think. And as far as he was concerned, his perception was his reality, and he was going to die. And in point of that, if you're going to die, what good is a birthright that you can't even enjoy anyway? So he was acting out of the desperation that he felt. But Jacob, what, what an enormously demonic thing to do. To your own brother, to take advantage of his state of being in desperation, to extort from him something so precious. It was a shameful thing. And there's just no other way around it. There's no other way but to call ugly what's ugly. And this was a shameful act. One of the really horrendous things to do to family in the Bible. But that still wasn't all. Because we have the story of deception that we just read. And so throughout this story, it's really this weird dichotomy. Because the person that's supposed to be the hero of the story is the villain in every possible chapter. He's the person that we don't like. He's the one who's taking what's not his. He's the one who's deceiving. He's the one who's stealing. And he's the one that God chooses to bless the world through. This man is an absolute mess. In every possible way, he's a train wreck. But he's the one that God gives the name that his people would wear for generations to come. Israel. He was the one that named, he was named Israel. And all the people that came after him followed that name and carried that name. Why would God choose one like this? Why would God use him? Why not Esau, the, at least the lesser of two evils at best? Well, the answer is this is what God always does. This is very much in keeping with what we see God always doing. God is continually in the business of using the least likely people to carry out the greatest of his missions. Think about it. This is a history that goes way back. When God needed to choose someone to save the world, the population of the world from mass destruction, he chose Noah, a man who was struggling with drunkenness. When he needed to start a new nation of people, a, a, a person who would bring up his own people, he chose Abraham, a coward who lied constantly and was in all kinds of trouble. When he needed somebody to lead his people out of Egypt, he chose a hothead named Moses who was a murderer with a speech impediment. 
When God wanted someone to deliver the kingdom from an evil king, he chose a lowly woman, a pagan woman, Abigail. When God needed to free his people from the oppression of the nation of Philistia, he chose a terrible person, a drunk, a womanizer named Samson. And what about Jesus himself? What about Jesus' closest friends, a prostitute, a tax collector, a religious extremist, a fisherman who struggled with racism? I mean, we're talking about the way God has always worked. God chooses the broken to to bring about his his plan. God chooses the the train wreck to bring about his purpose. And, And what a wonderful and powerful thing it is that God desires so desperately to redeem all things that he uses us, broken insecure, guilty, sin-ridden as we are. We who are ugly carry out that which is beautiful because of the majestic nature of God. 2 Corinthians chapter 12 and verse 9. Paul writes, God said to me, my, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. I will boast gladly about my weakness so that the power of Christ will reside in me. And this should give us hope. You know, because instead of looking at our present shortcomings, instead of looking at our faults, instead of looking at our sins, God chooses to look at the potential of what he can do in us and what he can do through us. And God be praised. Aren't we glad that he does? Aren't we glad that God doesn't see us for who we are, but he sees us for who we can be through him. And we serve a God who not only makes us whole, but brings about his whole plan through broken us. Bottom line is, if he can use Jacob, he can use us. God shines into the sin. But you know what? God also shines into the scarred. God also shines into the victim. God also shines into the hurt. And in so many ways, the character that gets forgotten in this story is Esau. Esau is the one who's wronged. Esau is the one who is scarred. Esau is the victim of Jacob's schemes. But God did not forget about Esau. God cared for Esau. God watched out for Esau. God took care of Esau. In Deuteronomy chapter 2, verses 4 and 5, the people of Israel are wandering back through, and they're instructed as follows. You're about to cross the border of your relatives, the descendants of Esau, who inhabit Seir, which is a mountain country. They will be afraid of you. So watch yourselves carefully. Do not be hostile towards them. I'm not giving you any of their land, not even a footprint, for I have given Mount Seir as an inheritance for Esau. You see, for 400 years, the Israelites were taken down into Egypt in slavery. But during those 400 years, Esau's relatives were living in peace in an established land that God watched out for and protected and cared for them during that time. Later, Joshua 24 To Isaac, I gave Jacob and Esau, and to Esau, I assigned Mount Seir, while Jacob and his sons went down to Egypt. Esau actually got his holy mountain many generations earlier than Jacob did. The point here is that God never lost sight of Esau. God recognized he was wronged. God recognized he was a victim. And God was sympathetic, and God was always careful to watch out for him. Esau is a reminder that when you and I are wronged, we have a God who cares. You ever feel wronged? You ever look at a situation and you go, I'm the victim here. 
You ever look at a situation and say, I got the short end of the stick and this isn't fair. Esau reminds us God never forgets that. God watches out for that. God watches out for us when we're wronged by others. God watches out for us when we're maligned by Satan. God watches out for us when we find ourselves at odds with the world. God still stands to heal us. God stands to mend us. God never forgot Esau. And my friend, when you are wronged, God will not forget you. He shines into the scarred. Finally, he shines into the story. He shines into the saga. He shines into the continuing story that unfolds from this point forward. What we see here is both the sinner, Jacob, and the scarred, Esau, were brought together and parts of God's plan. God's story went on. Despite the sin of man, despite the scars of pain, the story of God goes on. And so it is that we always see this kind of theme taking place. Think about the, um, the exodus from Egypt. This, this journey of, of many, many years that took place from Israel, Jacob's descendants. It was an interesting thing as they crossed through the land of Edom, which was Esau's descendants. The people of Edom were experiencing a time of hardship financially. The people of Israel were experiencing a hardship in that they didn't have resources, food. Edom had food, but not finances. Israel had finances, but no food. And as they traveled through the land, the Edomites actually provided, sold food to Israel, and Israel provided resources to Edom. Even in something as simple as traversing the land, God was fitting together the needs of both. God was working together all those things that were needful. If God's going to do that for the sinner, and God's going to do that for the scarred, don't you think God's going to do that for us? Don't you think he's going to work together all those things for our good? You know, of all the ways that they could have traveled to get to the promised land, he took them through that path. Of all the times that he could have taken them along that path, he took them along that path at the moment that that nation needed that money and at the moment that Israel ran out of food. And we just see God continuing to line things up perfectly over and over and over again to bring about his continuing story. The story of God is not derailed because of our sin. And the story of God is not derailed because of our scars. But God works both together, weaving the sinners and the scarred to provide a story that continues to be a compelling story for the world today. A story of salvation. You see, that's ultimately what both of these nations heard this story to be. A God who loved them and cared for them and provided for them. A God who saved them despite the fact that they started as sinners and they ended as scarred. You see, we too find ourselves in that story. Because we all come to this story as sinners. We all come to this story as sinners. The Bible says all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Anybody who tells you that they're not a sinner is deluded. Because we all are. 
We've all fallen short. We're all sinners and we find ourselves in the same place that Jacob did. Looking at God, recognizing fully that we are wrong in His sight. And yet God be praised, He gives us that forgiveness that we so desperately need. Can I say to you, we're all Esau. We're all scarred. We're all hurt. We're all wronged and we carry the wounds from generation to generation that we continue to pass on to the next. And what we need from that is the same thing that Esau needed from that, a God who was compassionate and caring and concerned. And that same God is compassionate and caring and concerned for us. He looks into your heartbreak and he says, I know it, I feel it. He says, I collect your tears in a jar. You know, you never shed a tear that God doesn't know it and God doesn't care. You see, we're all the sinners and we're all the scarred and we all have the same story that we're needing to find a conclusion to. Salvation. We're needing the story to end well. We're needing to find ourselves at the promised land at the end of the story. We're needing to find ourselves in security at the end of the story. We're needing to find ourselves saved at the end of the story. And the saga that we continue to witness to the world today is a, a story of salvation. Come sinners. Come scarred. And find at the cross of Jesus Christ the continuing saga that has provided the salvation, the promised land, for your journey. That's really why we're here. That's why we come together in this place every week to praise a God who has done that and to introduce anybody and everybody to the invitation that He gives. Come. You're heavy laden. You're burdened. You're carrying your sins. You're carrying your scars. And God wants to shine into that. And He wants to make you part of His continuing story of salvation. You know, we started service today in such a wonderful way. Seeing that video and watching a life being added into the kingdom of God, being added into the family of God. And you know that same possibility awaits every single person. We say all the time, the Marysville Church of Christ exists because we believe that every single person living in this community deserves the opportunity to say yes to King Jesus, to put him on in baptism, to know the joy of salvation, the forgiveness of sins, and the gift of the Holy Spirit. Come scarred. Come sinful. Find your place in the story. You know, if we can help you in any way with that, 